Thanks, Mike. Good morning. It's nice to be with you guys. It's been a while since I've I've got to be with you, and so yeah, thanks for thanks for your welcome. Thanks for your hospitality. I I want to start this morning by inviting you to imagine a beach vacation. Okay, start off good. All right, so so just close your eyes for a moment and just imagine yourself at an oceanside place. Think about what it feels like to be there, what, what it feels like to stand on the wet sand and have the water kind of move over your feet, sinking in a bit. Imagine the salty taste on your lips as you drink some water in. As, imagine what it feels like to have a swell lift you off the ocean floor and gently set you back down. The sounds, the smells. Yeah, that evokes certain memories, I'm sure, for some of you. For me, it evokes a lifelong childhood of going to uh, the southeast coast of the U.S. I'm from Virginia, and every year our, our family would, you know, my dad would, you know, play Tetris with the minivan and all our luggage and I would be in trouble for not bringing my luggage down in time and he would have that thing packed densely. That was a dense minivan going down the highway to the Outer Banks, which is a set of barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina and uh, that's where our family went every summer and we'd get there, we'd unpack, you know, the Tetris minivan, we would open up our wagon, we'd put all our beach toys in it and everything we needed for the day, and we'd go out to the beach and we'd set up camp, you know, we'd have our tents and our umbrellas and our beach chairs and our toys and our coolers. And before the sunscreen ever dried on our skin, my sisters and I would be beelining for the water, right? And we'd be going into the water to play for the rest of the day. Now, the Outer Banks, one of the things it's known for is is surfing on the on the East Coast, it's it's got strong currents, big waves, but with that comes a strong undertow. Um, and every single day, we would go and we'd play in this water, and the very same scenario would reenact itself e- every day. We would be, you know, body surfing or, or riding our boogie boards and jumping in the waves, surviving as little children in this vast sea of craziness. And we would look up every single day. And guess what wasn't right in front of us anymore? Our beach camp, right? Like every ride had pushed us further and further down current. You know, now the buildings aren't familiar anymore. Mom and dad are no longer in sight, you know. And the one rule she gave us before we went in the water was don't get out of sight, you know. Now all of a sudden she's not there. In our little minds, little bodies, it struck panic in us. Oh, no. And we would frantically search the coastline. Where's where's mom? And we would see her. Get back here, you know. Like, I told you. And so we would get on our boogie boards, and we would try to, you know, fight against the current to no avail. Just keep getting further and further away from mom and finally just have to disembark out of the water and walk back up the beach to our scolding. And uh, that's the way it went. Every single day we spent our day at the Outer Banks. We would drift and we'd be 
pulled to come back. And perhaps you know this process. Perhaps, you know, maybe it's not a beach experience for you, but but I think growing up, all of us have had these experiences where we've lost sight of mom and dad, right? Like we, we've lost our connecting point or, or our connection to this very important orienting person in our life, a person that brings us stability and security, love and affection and safety. And maybe it's not the beach, but, but we've all felt that. Maybe if you're a parent here, you've felt it on the other side, right? Now you're the parent on the beach. Get back here, you know? That's okay. I, I'm that parent now. Um, but there's, there's a panic. There's a disorientation is, is scary when, we've, when we drift away, uh, when we lose sight of what should orient us. And this morning, I, I just want to wonder out loud if maybe that feeling isn't just a feeling children experience with their parents, but maybe a very profound human experience for all of us in all of life. Perhaps you felt seasons in the past or, or now where life has felt disoriented, where you felt like what should be giving direction and orientation to your life well, what we would say is King Jesus. He seems small. He seems out of sight, insignificant, overpowered, where we feel like our reference point is lost. That's scary. Um, and the reality is that the currents of life are, are much stronger than the undertoes of of the Outer Banks. The things that happen in our life have strong current, um, hard things. Um, this, this past six months, our, our family has, has been what feels like in a whirlpool of, of current. Every time we, we think, oh, we're finally going to emerge from this, it just feels like it keeps sucking us down and we've we've dealt with sickness and pain and loss and death and it's hard and it's disorienting and sometimes our reference point feels far away or small um and i think i think this is a human experience of of life under the sun and so I want to wrestle with that experience this morning and wrestle with the questions that come with that experience. And, and I want to start by saying this, you know, a, a week ago, we celebrated Easter, right? Easter is a big Sunday in, in the course of every church. We celebrate this day where we recognize there is this anomaly in history that a dead man came out of a grave. He was resurrected to life. And and this man, Jesus, comes and, and that resurrection affords him the ability to speak peace over our rebellion stories, right? He, he comes and he speaks peace to us and he offers us a new story, a, a new life, an alternative way of going about the world. He allows us rebels who have appointed ourselves kings and queens over our lives to give up those tools 
give up the scepter of our own self-rule, and he, he presents us with these garden tools to go and make the world new again. And that's good news. We ought to celebrate that, right? Like, I mean, that's why we celebrate Easter. But I think there, in that celebration, we, we can almost uh, come out of Easter uh, and forget about the resurrection. And here's what I mean by that. I think often we kind of see the resurrection as a spark plug moment in our life. Oh, the resurrection's the thing that gives us new life. It's like, you know, jumping the car, reviving us to new life again. And then we kind of go about our walk with Jesus, kind of assuming we need a different type of fuel for that. Like there's something else that should fuel that. And, and often the default is our own effort fuels that. We try to fight against the current. We try to swim against life's current that's hard and disorienting. And if we're not careful, we, we kind of treat the resurrection as just this one-time moment in history where there was an exchange that happened. We got a new life, and then we just go on about our lives um, not understanding the resurrection is what is meant to fuel them as well. It's the very power that fuels our ability to stay oriented to Jesus. And so here's where I think our friends, our brothers and sisters in um, high liturgical church circles offer us a gift. They offer us the gift of the liturgical calendar, which has a season of time between Easter and Pentecost. And it's a season known as Easter Tide. Okay, it, it's a whole season that celebrates the resurrection. And it what that communicates is the resurrection is just not this one-time event that we get this exchange of new life, but it is an ongoing reality that fuels all of our life. It's, it's saying to us that Easter might be the answer, the resurrection of Easter might be the answer for our rebellion stories, but, but it's also our answer for how we live life under King Jesus. It's the very same power. The power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead makes us new, but it is also making us new. It didn't just make us new in the past. And so we're in the Easter tide season. We're in that season between Easter and Pentecost. And so I want to present to you an Easter tide question this morning. And it's this. How can we expect God to react when we drift away from the place of excitement where we entered salvation? How do we expect God to react when we forego the anticipation and exuberance where we entered the water of new life with Jesus? How is he going to respond to us drifting away? How is he going to respond to us when we fall back on the default of being our own kings and queens. How will he respond? Will he respond like my mom? Get back here. I told you never to leave my side. Or will he respond differently? I want to I answer that question by looking at the story of Peter this morning. Peter's an interesting character in the gospel. We're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the gospel of John, and we're just going to insert ourselves in 
in these little miniature scenes of Peter's story. And we're going to start by looking at John chapter 13, verse 31. I invite you to go there if, if you want to, uh, but I'll, I'll be reading it to us as well. So John chapter 13, verse 31, I'll set the stage a little bit. Uh, Jesus has had his last supper with the disciples. He, have, he has washed their feet. Um, he has told them, somebody's going to betray me. Judas has gone away. And this is where we pick up the story. When he, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while longer I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And so here's Peter. You know, Peter is the first disciple to recognize Jesus as the anointed king, the Messiah, right? Earlier in, in the story of Jesus, he's, he says, you, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. This Peter is confident of entering the waters of, of new life where Jesus is the king. He, he's all about it. He's full of confidence. He's confident in his ability to obey and follow Jesus wherever that might take him. And yet Jesus warns him in this passage, the current is going to take you off the path, friend. You, you think you will be able to follow me, and I'm telling you, there is coming a current that is going to make you drift. And so the story goes, right? Jesus is arrested in a garden. He's whisked away to the high priest's house for a trial. And Peter follows at a distance, the Gospels say. I think the picture they're painting is there is already distance being created. There's, there's a drifting that is happening at the pace in which Jesus is going to where he is says no one can follow him, and, and the pace in which Peter is willing to go. There's a drift happening. I want to pick up the story in John chapter 18, verse 15. They've arrived at the high priest's house, and now there's a mock trial happening. And this is what John tells us. Chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. 
want you to skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. So I want you to think about what's happening, what's developing in this story. There's a reference here to a man who is a relative whose ear Peter had cut off. What's that all about? If you know the story, you know that it was Peter who was with Jesus and some other disciples in the garden when Jesus was arrested. And it was in that garden, in a place where life is meant to be cultivated and flourished. It's in that garden that Peter unsheathed his sword and acted in violence, the violence of self-preservation. And this person would have known, like, that's a pretty memorable moment, right? Like, if you see somebody's ear cut off, you're going to remember who did it. And it's standing beside a charcoal fire trying to keep himself warm that he denies to multiple people that he follows Jesus. The other gospel writers quote, Peter as saying, I never knew the man, and he curses the man. It's a rejection of the very reality and presence of Jesus in his life. Peter's saying through his denial that this man has never existed to me. It's as if he never even entered the water of new life. That's how far he's drifted. He has fallen back into the default of self-rule for his own self-preservation. And the rooster crows, just as Jesus said it would crow. And the gospel writer Luke says that in that moment, Jesus and Peter catch each other's gaze. And Peter leaves weeping, is what Luke tells us. Now, maybe if you're a parent, you know what gaze can catch a child's eye, right? Blythe, look here, look here. What, what's being communicated in that gaze? understand what's happening understand this is a significant moment peter and jesus lock gaze now can you imagine the emotion of that moment the emotion caught in that split second of eye contact before the king is struck again all of that previous engagement with Jesus where Peter said I'll go wherever you go and Jesus saying the, the current is going to make you drift friend all of that is captured in that moment in that gaze in that eye contact and the Eastertide question comes before Peter in that moment what how will my Lord and my friend respond is he ashamed of me Will, he, will, will this ever be the same? Of course, we know how the story goes, right? Jesus is condemned. He's crucified. He's buried. At his burial, the disciples are said to scatter. He's resurrected. He even appears to the disciples locked in a room because they are scared and fearful because they've been disconnected from their orienting person. 
And the very first words he speaks to these fearful disciples in his new kingdom are peace unto you, peace. And he commissions them to work in this new world that's begun at his resurrection. He breathes on them the spirit of life and he says, go by this power and make new life, cultivate this new kingdom. And yet Peter is still drifting. Peter's still at drift. After this commission, we literally find him drifting on the sea. That's the next scene he's, he inhabits. He's returned to his previous life, and on that sea, failing as a fisherman, there is a man on the shore where he is fishing. Let's pick up the story again in chapter 21 of, of John. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land about a hundred yards off. And when they had got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want you to set up this scene in your imagination. Peter has been adrift since the arrest. The last significant moment he had with Jesus was a moment of shame, a moment where he locked eyes with his Lord as he denied him. And John tells him, that's the Lord out there on the shore. And Peter can't wait for the boat. He jumps in. The one he has been drifting from, his reference point has finally been made clear again. And he emerges from the water. He walks up the sand. And what is Jesus doing? But tending a charcoal fire. I don't think that detail is insignificant here. He asked Peter to return to the boat and bring back fish. And I want you to imagine what's going through Peter's mind in that moment. Here's the Lord. He's, he's attempting to reorient his life, to give himself back. And Jesus has met him around a charcoal fire. Jesus has recreated the scene of Peter's denial. That's what's happening here. Could you imagine how Peter feels about this moment? 
Oh, Jesus must remember. He must remember this scene. I, re- I remember the heartbreak I saw in his eyes when I denied him. The scene of denial has been recreated. Have you guys ever had instances in your life where there might be profound moments of guilt and shame and, and they've been etched in, there's been some physical thing that has been etched into your memory with those moments and it, you feel like you can't escape it. Every time you turn around, it's like you're confronted not just with the guilt and shame, but with a physical reminder of it. That's what's happening for Peter in this moment. And all the others come, and Jesus says, come, have breakfast. He had cooked a meal for them. He had been the hospitable person he has always been from the very beginning. Imagine all the others, Nathaniel and Thomas and and James and John. They're, They're laughing and delighting in their Lord, who they finally get to have communion with again, who they share the table with again, who they thought they would never see. They're delighting in the presence of Jesus and all Peter can do is think about the most terrible moment of his life. He's probably watching Jesus tend the coals of the fire, wondering what might happen. Perhaps Jesus even catches his eye as he's telling a story, just like he did at the previous fire. What is communicated in that moment? I think what Peter's asking is, what's, what's going to be the reaction of my king? How is my king going to respond to me drifting, me denying him, me pretending like I never knew him? How will this Jesus react? Will I be forsaken? Forgiven, banished, exiled, relegated to some meaningless task in this new kingdom he's unfolding. As Peter sits in that very tension, Jesus does something. He offers him bread. He broke it. He gave it to Peter. The language of the Last Supper. The place where Peter promised he would follow him. In this moment of tension, Jesus invites Peter back into fellowship and communion. That's how he responds. The drifting man's orienting point has been restored. But Jesus goes a step further. Let's read on. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this was said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. 
Jesus addresses Peter three times. Do you love me? The first two times he asks that question, the, the language of love he uses is the language of covenant, of allegiance. Will you follow me? Will you stay connected to me? The last time is the language of friendship. Do you trust me as your friend? He's providing Peter with a grace to reverse every single one of his denials. Isn't that awesome? Jesus doesn't need to profess his love for Peter. He's just done that by breaking bread and giving it to Peter, welcoming him back into fellowship and communion. But he knows Peter needs to be restored from this haunting moment in his life. So he provides the context where Peter can reverse that moment where that moment can be rewritten, where the resurrected King Jesus can use resurrected, resurrection power to rewrite that story, to bring new life to that story. He provides the context where Peter can be set free from the moment where he took back the reign of his life from King Jesus. And he not only restores Peter to fellowship, but he restores him to work. Ah, oh, Peter's not relegated to a meaningless kingdom task. He's relegated to go and tend people and build a new kingdom and cultivate the life of other Jesus followers. Peter isn't sidelined for his drifting. He's commissioned again to work bringing about the new kingdom in an old world. Jesus, through Jesus' resurrection, Peter's story and ongoing mission is resurrected. And so here's our connecting point. We are all drifters like Peter, every single one of us. Every one of us, even since last Sunday, has drifted away from from the resurrected one in moments, has had moments of disorientation, have had moments where mm, I'm, I'm not quite oriented correctly to the right person, the right things. We all drift, and the current of our world is strong. The current of our world will, will wash us further than what we expect it will. We have moments where we will all, like Peter, grasp for tools of power and self-preservation, tools of violence to keep us safe. We will all try to become our own kings and queens again by default. And sometimes this is out of sheer self-preservation. We don't trust that God is going to care for us. Sometimes it is out of frustration or fear. Sometimes it is out of Mourning. Sometimes it's because we feel unequipped for this new life Jesus is calling us to. Sometimes it's because of sin that our loves are misdirected toward the wrong things. But regardless of why, we will all find ourselves adrift at some point. And we are going to have these moments that seem to follow us around like charcoal fires followed Peter around. The evil one will want to keep reminding us of our drifting, discouraging us with it. Oh, Jesus, 
you can't return to him after this. How will he respond? That's the question we're going to be confronted with in those moments. That's the tension we're going to feel. And I want you to maybe even just sit and consider moments where this has happened for you. Maybe it's a moment that's happening now. Maybe it's a moment that has happened in your past where you have avoided eye contact and communion with Jesus or maybe another image bearer because you, you know there's distance there. And you're afraid of what a reconnecting might bring. You're, you're unwilling to, to face restoration because you don't really know if it's going to happen. We've all had those moments where we have been like Peter around that second fire where we've watched our friends and neighbors enjoy new life, enjoy the life that Jesus has meant for us to enjoy in his presence and delighting in him and others. And, and we've all been like Peter just watching it happen, happening and too guilty and shameful to allow ourselves to enjoy it because we're too preoccupied with the tension of, ah, am I okay in this circle? Is Jesus okay with me? And my question to you is, what do you fear in that moment? What is it that we fear in that moment? Why are we so afraid? I think it's because we expect God to react like we react. We expect God to be like ourselves. We create an image of God that is after our own image instead of vice versa. We too often are people who don't forgive, who don't restore people who have drifted from us or denied us. We are all too often people who don't reconcile or don't give charitable judgments or don't meet people with grace. One author that I like says, we have hearts that are spring-loaded with self-preservation and all that comes with that. And so when those hearts are struck, the spring sets and we react We expect God to react that way because we react that way. The theologian John Calvin says that there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think God is like ourselves. I think that's the exact tension we're dealing with when we drift. But I want to meet you with good news here. God's not like you. And he's not like me. He is not like us. He is high above us. The living King that has been resurrected and now lives with us through His Spirit, He is not like us. In Isaiah 55, there's these popular verses, you may have heard them before, that say this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And, you know, often I hear those verses referred to in the context of maybe a theological conversation where, where there's some, you know, theological question on the table that doesn't have a really nice and tidy answer. And somebody will quote those verses and just kind of chalk up the inability to answer that question to mystery, right? Well, God's ways are higher than our ways, you know. And, and that is, I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying... That's not how Isaiah 
has designed these verses to be heard, okay? He quotes these verses right after he says this. Listen, listen to the preceding verses. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that the Lord might have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. That's the context Isaiah gives us that. What he's saying is the way the Lord is most unlike us is in his compassion. It is so much higher and far above our compassion, our way of meeting people who have denied and drifted from us. The Lord is not like us. And in this story of Peter, we see it. The very question, the thing he feared didn't come to pass because the resurrected king is not like Peter. Jesus demonstrates his heart is not like ours, spring-loaded towards self-preservation, but his heart and God's heart is spring-loaded with mercy and grace and abundant pardon. The bend of the resurrected king in this resurrected world that he invites us to live in is grace and mercy and steadfast love. That is the bend of his heart. That's what it's spring-loaded, ready to meet us with. And so we need not avoid his gaze. We don't need to avert our eyes away from Jesus, even in our drifting. We're not going to find a wrathful, vengeful king there. We're going to find a tender friend. That's who we, who we find. And so whatever your firesides of drifting are, whatever the moments in your history that keep following you around and maybe you carry a weight of, hear this, friend. The Lord is waiting for your return. The Lord is waiting for you to jump out of the boat and swim to him, to come back to the table. He will meet you there. He invites you there. Those moments can... Uh, of our greatest tension, of our drifting and denial can be transformed by the resurrected King into moments of deeper compassion and deeper communion and, 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 and greater commission into His kingdom. And the beautiful thing about this is as we, as, as individuals, decide to do that, decide to return from our drifting and, and meet this resurrected king, we then come and we form communities like this one and, and, and like mine, where we are a community of self-acknowledged drifters who come together in this mystery called the church. This thing that Jesus says is the body that he is leaving on this old earth to work for new life we become his embodiment in this world as a community of self-acknowledged drifters. And we follow him as he instructs Peter to do. And we meet the world, not in a way in the way of self-preservation, but we as communities learn to have hearts like our God that are spring-loaded with mercy and grace and steadfast love. And our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family members who are adrift in the world, they meet Jesus. They meet the same Jesus that Peter met by that fire. They meet him through us. That is an amazing task we're given. 
And it's only a task that we can learn to do well as we ourselves come back to the resurrected King time and time again from our drifting and experience the heart of abundant mercy that's there for us. It's only when we do that that we can extend it into the world. And so, friends, in this Easter tide, may Jesus resurrect our moments of tension into holy moments of presence, into moments of communion, of delight, so that we might, through resurrection power, do the same for our neighbor. We might ask them the question that Jesus himself asked Peter and restores him with, do you love me? Well, follow me. It is in return that we experience God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, you meet us with the words of life. I, I'm reminded even in this moment of when many people were deciding to leave Jesus after he had stopped doing miracles and he asked the disciples, will you leave me as well? And Peter is the one who answers, Lord, where else will we go? For you have the words of life. Lord, give us the words of life, which is your forgiveness and steadfast love. Speak that to us through your spirit in this moment and in the moments to come through this week. In Jesus' name, amen.